Let's open in a word of prayer and then we'll get into our Bible study tonight. So if y'all would pray with me, please. Father, we just come to you tonight and we just want to thank you, God, for, um, Lord, just good Christian family. Father, thank you for uh, the people that you've put in our lives that uh, help to encourage us and help us to grow in our faith. And Father, I just pray, God, that you would help us to build stronger relationships, uh, Lord, that we can really get to know each other in a way that we can be a part of each other's lives and, and truly help each other grow, Father. And Lord, I just pray that, um, uh, Lord, that you would just be with us tonight as we get ready to get into your word and we uh, look to hear from you. Father, I pray that, Lord, you would truly speak to us, God. I pray that it would be more than a Bible study. God, I pray that we would hear from you and that, um, uh, Lord, that we would find application in it. Father, that when we leave here that we can apply this to our life in some way. And Father, I just thank you so much again for everything that you do for us, God. We, we love you, we praise you, we can never thank you enough for all that you are to us. And God, I ask you to do these things for us in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to be in Revelation chapter 20 tonight. We are coming close to an end of, um, of this book. So I, I kind of got tickled uh, thinking about Isaiah. Um, I had, my plan was I had it scheduled out and I thought, I can get through Isaiah in 25 messages. And then I got tickled at myself because I was thinking I'm fixing to be working on number three uh, just in this one chapter that was supposed to have been one message. But um, we, um, I like going through the books of the Bible the way that we do it, and I hope that you, I hope that you get more out of it the way that we do it. I hope that you uh, really are able to see how we study it, maybe pick up some things that you can go home and, um, and study better for yourself as well. So that's... Um, that's really my goal in, in the way that we do this. But tonight we are um, in Revelation chapter 20. I think we're going to start in verse, um, verse 7 tonight, I believe is where we're going to start. Um, actually, just for context, let's back up and start at verse, um, verse 4. And you remember before we read it, you might remember that um, basically what's happened is we have had the final battle, or I say the final battle, the, um, the next to last battle. Let me say that. The battle of Armageddon that has taken place. Christ has, has came back. He has set His feet down on Zion. The armies of heaven came with Him, and He has destroyed the wicked. And so now we are getting ready to establish a thousand-year kingdom that we've been talking about on Sunday morning here lately. We're talking about what we call the millennium. And it is a thousand-year reign, a thousand-year period where Christ reigns as King. And ultimately, this is going to fulfill the promises that God made to Israel. And Gentiles also are going to be included in this as well. But primarily, this is to fulfill the promises that God has made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and to that physical seed, if you will. And so we got a thousand-year period that Christ is going to reign on earth and uh, as we've been talking about it, if you can imagine um, a kingdom where the king is um, absolutely just in all of his ways. He, uh, righteousness is the belt of his waist, and, and the, everything he does is true and right. Uh, if you can imagine a, a king that um, the food never runs out. He is always providing. And you think about it. If you go back and you look at the life of Jesus when he was here on this earth, that was a foretaste of what the coming kingdom will be like. And think about what he did. Um, when, I know we joke about this, but when the, when the wine ran out, what happened? He made more. Uh, and when, um, when there was so many people and all they had was two fish and five loaves, what happened? It had how much left over? Twelve baskets full. And so he always had more left over. And so, you know, the, the point being is you see glimpses of a king that when he is king, you never run out of anything that you need. Um, there, everything you are, and not only that, but the people were filled to their full. It wasn't just that they were just satisfied. They were more than satisfied with what this king had provided. Um, when the winds and the waves got out of control, what did he do? said, peace be still. And what happened? And the disciples looked and they said, who in the world is this that even the winds and the waves obey Him? Uh, again, long story short is that when you go back and you look at all the healings that He did and everything that He accomplished, this is the kind of king that you're going to have and this is how He restores 
life on this earth right now as we see it. Not the new heaven, not the new earth. This earth right now, health is restored. Um, provision is restored. Um, the creation and the weather is restored. Um, that, it is literally the Garden of Eden, if you will, the way that it was before the fall of man here on earth. And so this is what period we're talking about that's being set up. And in this time, notice uh, Satan is bound in the first, part, first few verses of Revelation chapter 20. But then in verse 4, notice what he says. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. And they came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Alright, so here we got this thousand year period. We got all these thrones here. And do you remember last week who we established is sitting on these thrones? Who is it that's on these thrones? Let's look at a few scriptures to find out. Look with me at Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, verse 28 and 29. Hmm? Part of it, that's right. Part of them. Matthew chapter 19, verse 28 through 29. Actually, let's back up to verse um, 27. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. And so one of the things that we see in this, in that scripture right there, is that we're going to have all the ones that have... He's talking to his disciples here and he categorizes them in a group of twelve, of course. But he says, everyone who has followed me is going to sit on thrones with me. That they are going to judge in this world as well. And then if you'll look with me at, let's look at another scripture. Um, look with me at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. And there's a lot of scriptures we'll look at tonight because that's how we establish good doctrine is we want to see what the whole of the Word of God says about a particular issue, not just what one verse says. So 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. It says, If we endure, we will also do what? Reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. And so, in that verse, it tells us that we are going to reign with Jesus Christ. Now look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's go there. I'm going to get you good at finding books of the Bible tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1 through 3. And look at what this scripture says. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? And so what Paul was addressing here is that church members were taking one another to court over trivial matters. Paul steps in and he says, Do you not know that you are going to judge the world? 
In other words, you are going to sit on the thrones during the millennial kingdom in your glorified form and you are going to judge the world during that time with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he also goes a step further and says, do you not also know that you are going to judge angels? And now we know that he's talking about here the angels that are in the bottomless pit that are being held there and changed until the day of judgment. But in some way, God is going to allow the saints, the disciples of Jesus Christ, the believers, to judge the angels that left their abode. Um, and so we're, we are going to be the judges during this time with the Lord Jesus Christ. Look with me again at, um, go, to, go back to Matthew 18. I should have went to there after, keep you from having to flip too much. But go back to Matthew 18, verse, starting in verse 15. And what I'm trying to establish here is the authority of believers as a group, all right? And the authority that Jesus gives believers as a group, not as individuals, as a body, all right? So look at uh, Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, then you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, then take one or two others, another bro brothers, along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. All right. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That's pretty, pretty bad, right? That's pretty serious. But keep reading. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now this is a verse that's taken out of context many, many times. But what he's talking about here is church discipline. He's talking about when the church body comes together and they make a decision on something. And in this case, he's talking about the, um, a brother that has an issue with another brother. And he says that first you start out by you and him just trying to do it on your own, right? If it can't work out, get two or three witnesses that every charge may be established and that the evidence can be presented. If he still refuses to listen, bring it before the church. And so what are all of these witnesses doing? They're judging, right? And ultimately, he says, when the church makes a final decision on a judgment in a matter, if that brother still refuses to listen, then you let him be like a tax collector or a Gentile. What, what does that mean? Outcast. That's exactly right. And here's the point. The point is that whatever you bind on earth, not me individually, who's he talking to here when he says whatever you bind on earth? The church, the group, whatever you do as a group, two or three, more than one, whatever you do as a group of believers, God says whatever you bind on earth, guess what God does? He binds it too. In other words, He says, if you bind this person to say they're a Gentile or a tax collector, guess what God does? He stands by your judgment. He stands by your judgment. Ultimately, what are we seeing here? We're seeing that God gives, or Jesus here gives, significant authority to group of believers. You see what I'm saying? And this is the reason why we practice the way that we do. The church has the final say in all matters. This is the reason why we let the church govern itself. We don't have just a, I'm not the dictator here. I don't make the decisions. My job is to feed the sheep, to make sure we're going the right way with the Word of God. But at the end of the day, every decision we make, we make as a whole, as a group. Why? Because that's where the authority lies. And whatever decisions we make as a group, God says, I stand by it. Whatever decisions you don't make as a group, God says, I stand by it. Specifically in this context, He's talking about dealing with trivial cases or de dealing with, with sin, with brothers and sisters in sin. Does everybody understand where I'm coming from there? All right. 
Now let's look at another verse of Scripture. Go with me to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3 verse 21. Revelation chapter 3 verse 21 says, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Go with me to Revelation chapter uh, 2. I should have went there first. Chapter 2 verse 26. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. So you see how we can take all of these scriptures, and now we can take all this data we collected, and we can put it into one little box here, and we can say, during this thousand year reign, where, where Jesus reigns as king. Timothy, Paul and Timothy told us we're going to reign with him if we endure. He tells us in Matthew that as a group, as a whole, that he gives great authority to the group of believers. He tells us in Revelations that the ones that conquer, and he's talking to churches here, he's talking to believers, the ones that conquer are going to have authority to sit on the, the throne of Jesus and to rule and to reign over the nations. And so... If you can't get here on time, just get here whenever you can. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh yeah, you can't do that. So um so anyway, the point being is that whenever you go back to Revelation chapter 20 and you look at look at verse 4. Notice what he says. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Well, who do all the Scriptures tell us has been given the authority to judge? All the believers. That's exactly right. All the believers that, 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 that went to heaven. And so we are going to be able to judge with Jesus during this time. Now, praise be to God, we will be in a glorified form. And so we won't be in our sinful bodies, and that's the reason why we're able to judge with Jesus. But there will still be human beings on this earth that will need to be judged, right? Because not everybody dies at the end of the tribulation, all right? So th that's what we're looking at right here, is this, um, is this judgment that is going to take place during this thousand-year reign. And then... If, we're not going to go back there for the sake of time, but if you were to go back to Daniel chapter 7, we also find that the Old Testament saints are also included in this. And so we've got the Old Testament saints that have been resurrected at this time, and now they are coming into this kingdom to rule with Jesus. You've got the New Testament saints and the disciples that Jesus told, you're going to rule and reign with me. And so we have all the saints, all believers of all time, that are now coming into this thousand-year kingdom to rule over with Jesus Christ. And then if you'll notice, um, and it's not just Old Testament and New Testament saints, but look where it goes next at the end of verse 4. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the Word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reign with Jesus for a thousand years as well. So you got Old Testament saints, you got New Testament saints, you've got um, believers that were killed and beheaded during the tribulation or any martyrs during this time, that they come to life, they reign with them. But then notice what it says in verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Now if... All the believers have been resurrected from the dead. Who's left? So the rest of the dead don't come back to life until the thousand years are ended. But unbelievers are going to be resurrected. Unbelievers are going to come back. Unbelievers are going to be given a new body too. 
We'll get into that here in just a few minutes. But let's keep going. Notice what he says next. This is the first resurrection. So here's my question from last week. I want to see if anybody studied or anybody looked into this at all. How many resurrections are there? If this is the first, what does that tell you? There's more than one. All right. And Melinda says there's two. All right. You think there's three? All right. Tell me where are the three. Tell me what you think they are. Well, that is the first resurrection. Okay. When did they come to life? The rapture? Okay. The second resurrection. So you think there's three resurrections, one at the rapture, one at the end of the tribulation, right before the thousand-year reign, and then one at the end of the thousand-year reign. Okay? Okay? All right. Yeah? <laughs> That's the reason I, I asked this. Let me, let me say this before y'all go any further. Remember what I said last week. These are things, these are not hills we have to die on. Because there are some that agree with you completely. There are some that actually believe in four. There are some that believe in two. There are some, and so we're going to talk about it here in just a minute. But anybody else want to give me any um, input that you might have on it? <laughs> okay. 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 Well, Jesus is the second Adam is what he calls him. Yeah. 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 Yeah, the promise, son of promise. Mm -hmm. So you're saying it, it may not necessarily, necessarily mean first in numerical order, is what you're saying. Okay, all right. Here, here's where I would say to uh, for us to be careful with something like that. Um, if the context gives us a reason to to see that it may say that, then I would say you could follow that line of thinking and see where it goes. Um, in this particular case, I don't believe the context justifies that line of thinking. So, uh, and the reason I say that is because when you're studying, and this is what we're doing, I'm trying to teach you how we study the Bible. And so when you start following a line of thinking, you want to make sure that the context justifies it. Because if it don't, this is how uh, doctrines are developed that are, are not biblical. And so you want to be careful whenever you, whenever you think that away. See, is this a situation? Is there something here that would give me reason to believe that it is the way that... And, and so, so anyway, I, I would say be careful with that. But again, I'm not saying that she's wrong either. Uh, anybody else? Okay. And so that's basically what she's saying, is that first doesn't necessarily mean numerical order, just the first of its kind. So, okay. All right. Well, here's the thing. Some people, again, some people say that these are literally first and second resurrections. Some people actually talk about the first resurrection actually being a resurrection that happens in, in stages. And so... It is still the first resurrection, but it started at Jesus Christ being the first fruits because Paul talked about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He said, Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, and then those that are dead in him afterwards. And so we have the first fruits, then we have the fruits. And so what you see here is that there is some teaching and some justification from Paul to see that the first resurrection could still be beginning with Jesus 
And then the second stage of it would have been at the rapture when he steps out and the trumpet blows. And then the next stage of it would be at the end of the tribulation whenever the, the rest of them are, are raised to life. And so it, 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 here's the thing again. I'm not going to be dogmatic and say that yes, there is three resurrections or there is two resurrections. But I will say this. Here's what we can we can look at it, we can study it, but the biggest thing is what do we take away from it that's most important? <laughs> that's exactly right. You want to be there, you want to be a part of the first resurrection. Whether it takes place at the rapture or whether it takes place at the end of the tribulation, you want to be a part. And, and how do we know that this is what he's trying to get across? Look, what does he say in verse 6? Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. And so again, the author stops here and he says, here's the main point. You want to be a part of the first resurrection. If you're not a part of the first resurrection, then that means the second death is going to have power over you. So how many times do we die? We only die once? Wants to die, okay. So then what is a second death? Who dies twice? So there are two deaths that the human being can experience, possibly. All right, that's exactly right. Don't mean everybody's going, because some, he want, the second death won't have power over it. Now, we'll keep going here in a minute and we'll figure out what this second death is, but let's just, just for sake of clarity, what's the first death? The physical death. How many people will die the physical death? <laughs> so 10 out of 10 people will die unless by some miracle you are like Enoch or Elijah, uh, which I still believe even they will one day have to come back and die. Maybe they're the two witnesses from Revelation chapter 12. I don't know. But the Bible says very plainly, it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. And so there is a first death, a physical death that human beings are going to experience, but then there is a second death that is possible, and many will experience a second death. And so we'll get into that here in just a little bit, but let's, let's go a little bit further and notice what he says in verse 6 at the end of it. He says, but they will be priests of God and of Christ. So the people in the first resurrection are going to be priests of God and of Christ. What do priests do? What's the job of a priest? Huh? Okay. Protect the flock? Okay. And, and those are all right answers. They're not wrong answers. It's not the answer I'm looking for, but that is right. That's what they do. There we go. They're the ones that are interceders between God and sinners, correct? Now... The Bible tells us that we are a royal priesthood, talking about the church. So ultimately, as believers, you and I are all priests unto God. We are a royal priesthood. So what we have to understand here is that he's talking about believers here, but during this time, the people that are raised in the first resurrection, the believers that have come back to life, they are going to serve as the priests for the people that stand between God and the rest of the human beings that are still on this earth during that time. And as they continue to have kids and more and more kids and more and more kids, this is what will be their job during, during this time. So they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. Now as I told you last week, there are some differing views on that thousand years. It's not something we have to be divided on. It's okay. There are some that believe that this should be interpreted symbolically and that the thousand years is not a literal thousand year period, but it just means a long period of time. Um, there, there are some believe that we are living in the thousand year symbolic period right now. 
Matter of fact, there are three main views. I'm not going to go through them all in detail like I did last week, but there are three main views. One of them is um, a premillennialist view, and that just simply means that Jesus will come back pre-millennium. So in other words, He is going to come back before this thousand years starts. Then there are post-millennialists. And what does post mean? So post-millennialists believe that Jesus is going to come back after the thousand years to set up to, to, to a kingdom that, that we have already set up is what they believe. Then you have amillennialists who also believe, very similar to postmillennialists, that we are in a thousand year period right now that when so basically they believe that when Jesus came the first time, he already set the kingdom up. And so now you and I are just um, we're reigning in that kingdom right now. God has given us authority as believers and now we are ruling and reigning and, and we are living in this thousand year kingdom and when Jesus comes back, that's whenever He's going to take us to the eternal kingdom. Alright? I told you last week, my problem with that is according what happens before this thousand year period. Look at Revelation chapter 20 verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. If we're in the thousand year period right now the way that post-millennialists and amillennialists believe, is Satan bound? Is he, is, he dece- is he not deceiving the nations anymore right now? He is, he is and a matter of fact, if that's true, then why did Peter say to the New Testament church, after Jesus has already been resurrected and went to heaven, why did Peter say, watch out for your adversary is like what kind of animal? A roaring lion going to and fro, seeking whom he may... Devour. Does that sound like a bound Satan to you cast into the bottomless pit? So again, I believe that there is sufficient evidence for us to interpret these scriptures the way we interpret them as premillennialists that Jesus will come back prior to this thousand year kingdom that it is going to be a literal thousand years to fulfill the promises that He made to Israel. That's why you need this thousand year kingdom because God has said, I'm going to keep my promise. I'm going to keep my promise. And so I believe that we are correct in interpreting this the way that we're interpreting it and, um, and I believe that it is going to be a literal thousand year period that we are going to be able to rule and literally rule and reign in. Not in a symbolic sense the way that they believe we're doing it right now if we're in the thousand year period. symbolic resurrection that like baptism that we've been buried in Christ and spiritually we have been raised to so again they they look at most all of this as symbolic through and through and so that's that's the reason I said when you study revelation you're going to have a difficult time um, understanding it unless you have some kind of idea about the different ways that people interpret it there are some people that that interpret it completely as a historic book that everything has already happened in history, that this is actually about the destruction of Jerusalem by Emperor Titus in A.D. 70. Or there are some that believe this is a a book that, um, again, just describes spiritually the the, the trials of the church right here and now in this thousand-year period. And then there are people like us who are interpreted as futurists, that we believe that these are things that are going to take place in the future at the end of at the end of time at the end of days, and so this is it, and depending on how you what line of thinking you choose will change the interpretation of the entire book. You see what I'm saying? It'll change the application of the entire book. So I believe that we have sufficient scriptural evidence when you look, and that's the reason why it's important to me to go back and show you so many different scriptures that talk about the way that I'm teaching it so that you can see that we're developing this doctrine of the end times by 
the whole of what the Bible teaches, not just thinking, okay, this is just symbolic, but there are other scriptures that Jesus taught that back up what we're saying right here about us ruling and reigning and sitting on thrones, right? All right. So there are um, possibly two, three resurrections, but one thing we know for certain, there's at least going to be two resurrections. There's going to be a first resurrection, and then there's going to be a second resurrection. The first resurrection, people are holy and blessed if they get to be a part of it. Uh, they're going to serve as priests to God and to Christ in the thousand-year kingdom that Christ reigns over. Um, and then the second um, resurrection we're going to see here just a little bit further. But go with me to verse 7. It says, And when the thousand years are ended, so the thousand years are over, then Satan is going to be released from his prison, and he will come out to deceive the nations that are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. Now remember, for a thousand years, we have ruled over a kingdom of human beings that are still sinners, right? Now, what's the problem with the sinful heart? Does he desire to follow God? His desire is to rebel against God, right? And unless God, through His Holy Spirit, opens our eyes, changes our heart, draws us to Him, the truth of the matter is we will always be in rebellion against God. Always. And so in this situation right here, we have a large number of people in a thousand years that have uh, procreated and repopulated the earth again. And now Satan is released because God is going to do, once he's fulfilled his promise to Israel, once he has established the kingdom like he promised them he was going to do, now evil has to be completely done away with. And so God let Satan out for just a little while. Why? What do you think is the reason behind it? Right? And it, it could be. You know, here, here's, here's the thing. I believe that Satan is going to be released because he is going to be the head that's going to gather around uh, the final rebellion against God. He's going, just like he did in Armageddon, he's going to gather up this army so that they're all in one place at one time and, and literally as soon as it starts, it's going to be over as fast as it begun. Uh, look what happens in verse 9. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. I mean, that, that fast. It's over. This rebellion is over as soon as it started. And then notice what he says next. Well, lost my place. Hang on. Yeah. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So the devil is finally judged at this point. God is through with him. Evil has reached its climax. Um, and this is the reason why in, at the battle of Armageddon, the Antichrist and the false prophet were thrown in the lake of fire right, right away. But Satan was thrown into the bottomless pit, the holding place for angels and demons and, and the wicked that, until the day of judgment, right? And now, after the end of the thousand years, Satan is released to gather all evil together again, and there's one final blow to it that wipes it out. God takes Satan, throws him into the everlasting fire where, Satan, where the Antichrist and the false prophet are as well. No, that's right. That's right. That's exactly right. And you know, Satan, when he comes out at the end of this thousand years, do you think that, do you think he's been humbled any? <laughs> that's exactly right. He's as mad, that's right, a chief narcissist. He is as mad as he has ever been. And he comes out raging raging to gather up as many and all that he can to try to defeat God Almighty, which he knows he can't. 
But then notice what happens next in verse 11. So next we see, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. So we got this great white throne and somebody that's seated on it. Who is seated on the great white throne? Huh? All right. You got anybody got any scriptures that can back that up? While you're looking, I'll give you one. Go to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 5. Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 22 through 29. John chapter 5, starting in verse 22, says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in Him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So who's sitting on the throne? Jesus is sitting on the throne. The Son is, getting on is sitting on the throne. And now notice what happens in verse 11 of Revelation 20. And from His presence, earth and the sky fled away and no place was found for them. What happened? Almost. What's got to happen before the new heaven and the new earth? The old heaven and the old earth have to do what? Alright. So let's see if this is what that's talking about. Go with me to um, 2 Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3. And let's look at verse um, 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. What happens when something is burned up and dissolved? What does that look like? It literally just if if flees away, right? All right, and then it says, "And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed." And now go with me to Hebrews chapter twelve. Verse twenty six through twenty eight. It says, at that time, his voice shook the earth. Now at this point, he's talking about when, when, remember when the people stood in front of Mount Zion and they told Moses, they said, Moses, we don't need you to talk to God for us. We can talk to God ourselves. You remember what happened? They came to the bottom of that mountain and when God began to speak, it sounded like a trumpet blast and the rocks began to shatter into pieces and the people fled away and bowed down and said, Moses... You talk to God and we'll listen to you. But don't let God talk to us no more lest we die, lest we be consumed. And God said, Moses, they're exactly right. And so ultimately they heard the voice of God and it shook the mountain. And so he says here in verse 26, At that time his voice shook the earth. 
But now He has promised, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So again, here's all he's saying. He's saying that there's coming a day when God is going to shake yet once more the heavens and the earth so that they are done away with. And we are going to receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken, that will never be done away with. And this is that moment when we go back to Revelation chapter 20, uh, verse 11. He says, I saw a great white throne and Him who was seated on it, and from His presence the earth and the sky fled away, and no place was found for them. You know why no place was found for them? They, do, they dissolved. They are, it's gone. All right? It's nothing left now at this point except for apparently, I don't know if we're sitting in space in front of this great, I, I don't know. But I do know that it says that when He sat on it, from His presence, earth and the sky fled away and no place was found for them. And then notice what happened in verse 12, just like Jesus said. Jesus said there was coming a day when all the people in the tombs hear His voice and they rise up. All right, some unto resurrection of life, some unto resurrection of death. But in verse 12, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. So what is he talking about there? What does he mean when he says the sea gave up its dead? Because uh, remember the, the tombs gave up their dead, the sea gave up its dead, uh, death and Hades gave up its dead. What does it say in there? That's exactly right. Anywhere that death has occurred, anywhere that people that the dead are, they're coming out of them. Do you know how many people have been lost at sea, especially at this time? you know how many shipwrecks and how many battles? And, and uh, during this time, there's no telling how many people were, were dead in the sea, and yet the sea is going to give up every one of their dead. And then death and Hades are going to be... Uh, death and Hades, here we're getting into um, their... their personified. In Revelation chapter 6 verse 8 you have a, a picture where death, go, go there with me, I, I can't remember exactly what it said. Revelation chapter 6 verse 8. He says, And I looked and behold a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence. And so honestly, all through Revelation, um, death and Hades have been personified. But death, what does death do? What does death do? Takes life, right? Death takes life. What is Hades? The place of the dead, the, the holding place of the dead. It is, I believe, the bottomless pit that he's talking about right here. And we talked about that last week, that hell, Hades, and the bottomless pit are all likely the same place. But ultimately what you've got is death and Hades operate together. All right, Death takes life, Hades holds them until the day that they rise up for judgment. And so in this time... We're not talking about paradise. We're not talking about heaven. But instead, we're talking about Hades. We're talking about hell. But they gave up the dead who was in them. Because remember, hell is not the final destination for evil, for wicked. Hell is a temporary holding place that one day... And now, the, hell is the place of outer darkness that Jesus said. And what is outer darkness? The darkest of the dark, 
Literally, you can't see your hand in front of your face. It's a place of outer darkness where no light exists. It's a place where uh, the worm never dies. It's a place where the thirst is never quenched. It's a place of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And so it is a great place of torment. But there is coming a day when He takes all of that and He throws it into the lake of fire. And that's what we're fixing to see right here. So notice what happens. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So what's the second death? The lake of fire, the final judgment, it is the place to where the torment will never ever end and you are, they're raised from the dead here and they're actually given a new body. Now this body is fitted not for eternal life, but for eternal death. This is a body that will always die, but never completely die. It will always burn but it will never be consumed. This is not just a first death, this is a second eternal death. That's the reason why he said blessed and holy are the ones that get to take part in the first resurrection. Because everybody else that is raised up to the second resurrection, it is only unbelievers and there is only one final destination and that is the eternal lake of fire that we see taking place right here. And then he says in verse 15, not only was death and Hades thrown in there, and I like that too. Uh, that, that's beautiful. Because death and Hades are personified here. Death is the one, and you've seen the death angel, right? You've seen the, the way they personify him on TV. But in this day, God takes death personified, and he throws him in the lake of fire. What does that mean for death? <laughs> It's beautiful when you really think about it. And Hades, again, uh, the other place of the, uh, the holding place of the dead thrown into the lake of fire, no more. And then in verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so basically what you've got here is um, the great white throne judgment. I'll end with my last question, and I don't know if we have time to finish it or not. We've got five minutes. How many judgments are there? Two? All right. What are they? All right. Judgment seat of Christ. Who gets to appear before the judgment seat of Christ? Believers. Okay. And then the great white throne judgment. Who gets to appear before the great white throne judgment? Unbelievers, okay. Is there another judgment? Huh? One one view is that somebody say something. All right, let's look at that judgment for a minute. Look with me at, um, let's look at uh, Luke chapter 19. Starting in verse 12. He says, he said, therefore, <clears throat> a nobleman went, and notice, first off, let's back up to verse 11, because let's let, notice the context he told the parable in. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. All right? So they're looking at going into the kingdom of God, okay? But notice the parable that he tells in that context. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country, 
to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. And when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came to him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. Or minas, however you pronounce that. And he said to him, Are you to be, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I have kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put your money, put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. And Jesus said, I tell you that I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given to him. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. The reason I'm telling this right here is because Jesus told that parable in the context of understanding that when you enter into the kingdom, there is going to be a time that we have to give an account to the master. You see that? The master of the kingdom. He has given his servants things to work with. The question is going to be, what did you do with the things that I gave you to work with so that it would be gain in my kingdom when we come into it. Some of them worked and gained, and the ones that gained, what happened to them at the end? They got more. The ones that didn't gain, what happened to what they had? Taken away and given to the ones that already had. And so the point being is this. There is going to come a point. Look at one more scripture. I don't have time for any more. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. That's right, there's several of them. 1 Corinthians 5.10, 1 Corinthians 4.5, um, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 5.10, 1 Corinthians 4.5. There, there are several scriptures that talk about this, but for sake of time, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, look at verse 12 through 15. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, talking about the day of judgment, will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, then he will receive what? A reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So again, what we learn, and, and Jesus talked about storing up treasures in heaven, that serving Him and um, working for Him. Uh, the Bible tells us that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive the things done in the body, whether they be good or whether they be bad. And so the Bible teaches us in many places that we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And as to answer Melinda's question, it won't be for salvation. Salvation was determined by faith right here, right now. All right? But when we stand as believers before the judgment seat of Christ, we stand to give an account as servants of His. And we're going to give an account for what we did with the things that He gave to us to invest into His kingdom. And the one that was given ten minas or ten denarius and he went out and he made ten more denarius, guess what? He was, he was richly rewarded and according to Luke to, be, to reign over ten cities. Now, I don't know if that's literal or symbolic, but I think in the millennial kingdom, thousand year reign, maybe he literally gets ten cities to be king. I, I don't know. <coughs> but <coughs> either way, 
we're going to give an account for the things done in the body, whether they be good or bad, and you are going to receive rewards that, according to Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 or 6, I believe it is, moth and rust will not break in and destroy. What does that tell you about these treasures? They last forever. Their value never diminishes. They, they, this, is, this is something that you get to keep throughout all eternity. That's right. Well, that's what he said right here in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. That's right. That's right. The books are open for both. Everybody's going to give an account for what they did in the body, believers and unbelievers. The only difference is believers get rewarded for theirs. Unbelievers get punished and get judged for theirs. Uh, well, likely. Uh, we'll, we may, I may hit on that next week some, but there's different views on that. Some believe the great white throne judgment that all of this takes place. Everything we've discussed tonight takes place at that moment. Some believe Matthew chapter 25 where he judges and separates the sheep from the goats. Some believe that is a picture of what happens at the great white throne judgment, that the sheep are on one side, the goats are on the other. And so there are some views that say it takes place all at the same time, one judgment where um, that, that's what happens, separation of sheep and goats. There are others that believe there are actually three judgments, that the separation of the sheep and goats is a judgment that takes place at the end of the tribulation, at the right before the going to determine who gets to go into the millennial kingdom. So there's some that believe that's one judgment, and then the next judgment will be the judgment seat of Christ, and then the third judgment would be the great white throne judgment. So there's some that believe in three. Again, I don't want to get caught up on the details. You can study that for yourself and land on whichever one you want to land on. I don't really care. But um, what is the point? What are we trying to take away from this? What There is going to be a judgment, right? You want to be part of the first one, all right? You want to be part of the judgment seat of Christ, not the great white throne judgment. And you are storing up one of two things. Right now, as you're living, you are either storing up treasures in heaven or you are storing up wrath for the day of wrath. One of the two. Don't think that you're sitting here not doing anything and that you're not accomplishing something. That's the reason why I'm telling people, invest in the kingdom of God. It is worth your sacrifices to make to, I'm going to throw a feeler out here to teach on a Wednesday night. That's right, I said it. Um, it, is, it is worth it for you to sacrifice to, uh, to be in ministry somewhere or just trying to invest in the kingdom of God in some way. Now, I also believe that we are gaining rewards by growing in Christ ourselves by becoming more like Him. And so that is also a work of the kingdom that we are investing in. But I'm telling you one thing. You're storing up either treasures in heaven or you're a believer sitting there doing nothing who will be saved, but you're going to suffer great loss because you ain't done anything to store anything up. Or you've never truly been saved. You've never truly been born again. And one day, the books are going to be opened and you've been storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. One of those things are going to happen. Which, which line are you going to be in? That's the, I believe that's the application. I believe that's the question. All right, any other questions or comments tonight? Yes, sir? Hang on, let me get your question in my head here. At the first resurrection, does that apply to what to everyone in the millennial kingdom? I don't think so. Again, this is where I think the different stages would come in of the first resurrection. And I believe that people um, more than likely will be born again in the millennial kingdom. But again, that's a question that uh, you know, the Bible says that the secret things belong to God, that there are some mysteries that we don't understand fully. And I believe that's one of them, is we don't really know how all that's going to play out during that time. 
Yes, that's what he's saying. He said, are those, because the first resurrection takes place prior to the thousand year reign. So what about those people living, are they all going to be rebels against God or are some of them going to be saved and then they're going to be resurrected? And so that's, I understand the question. So again, that's the reason I said that that's one of those things we don't really understand. It could be answered in what we said earlier, that Jesus was the first fruits of the first resurrection and then at his coming, they were the next part of the first resurrection. And then during that period, that's another part of the first resurrection. Uh, that could be an answer to that. But I try to be very careful whenever I uh, teach on stuff like this that I like to speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible is silent. Uh, I'm not a person that's scared to tell you I don't know. <laughs> um, and that may, that may be the best answer for you right now is I, I don't really know for certain. Anybody else? Yes, sir. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yep that's alright that's a good observation yeah I here's the thing about it and there's a scripture in here I shouldn't have closed my Bible there's a scripture in here that actually talks about uh, the rest of the beast didn't um, let me find that it was in 19 or 20, I think 20. But, um, yeah, look at, um, no, that's not it either. I'll answer your question. I'll, I'll have to find it, and I don't really have time to look through it right now. But um, to, a- to answer your question the best I can right now without giving you the Scripture, which I don't like to do, would be that um, somewhere between after... Satan is bound, and the end of that thousand years, it seems to be maybe that's where it fits into some kind of a judgment of those angels. And I also know the Scriptures tell us that we're going to judge them. So, you know, I do know that it's going to take place. The timing of it, I'm not sure. I'm not sure when they're released and whatnot. All right. Thank you all for your time and attention. Uh, If you got further questions, just let me know and I'll be glad to answer them best I can.